0: Well, currently, we are sitting in the center of Sun Studio, where rock and roll was born, here in Memphis, Tennessee.
2: You women have heard of Jalopas, you've heard the noise they make, but let me reduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's great, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, will ride in style. Moving all along. You're hearing the song, Rocket 88, widely considered to be the first rock and roll song ever recorded. It was recorded here at Sun Studio by Jackie Brinston and his Delta Cats. The Delta Cats included Ike Turner, one of the many legendary musicians to record here. Artists from many genres such as B.B. King, Roy Orbison, and Rufus Thomas all used Sun Studio. It was the home to one of the most legendary nights in music history when the Million Dollar Quartet, consisting of Elvis, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis, recorded a spontaneous jam session. Sun Studio even played a central role in the feud between Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. I'll get to that over the next few episodes, and you won't want to miss it. In this next episode, I'll take you on an audio tour of this legendary studio that changed music forever.
0: I'm Crockett Hall. I'm the audio engineer here, along with Zoe, and I also am one of the tour guides.
3: I'm Zoe Duran. I'm one of the tour guides here, and then I'm also one of the assistant engineers in the studio.
2: Awesome, so why don't you start by telling us where we are right now? As we go, you'll notice that the stories just flow out of Crockett and Zoe. That is the result of giving countless tours over the years. But it's also a product of the space itself, I think. It exudes creativity and invites you to get lost in its stories. From the beginning, this place has been special. I'd like to go back to the beginning of time. No, I'm just kidding. I would like to go back to what this was prior to it being an actual studio.
0: Well, it's funny you say going back to the beginning of time because there's a lot of people who have theories about the electromagnetic activity here in Memphis being part of the reason that, rock and roll really kind of stuck in a place like this. Jim Dickinson, who is a famous audio engineer, well, not nearly famous enough, he, he did some work with the Rolling Stones and Big Star and other bands here in Memphis. He also cut here in this room right before they moved down the street from where we're currently sitting, but he used to say there's something about the air in Memphis where it just makes the magnet the music stick to the magnetic tape more. So, So it does kind of go back, some people believe, to the beginning of time, but it all kind of started here because of Sam Phillips and Marion Keisker wanting to start a place where Sam could record the incredible blues artists that he heard performing on Beale Street. He was working as an audio engineer for the Peabody Hotel, WREC, which was, excuse me, inside of the Peabody Hotel. And he was very bored with the big band music that he was engineering. Because just the street over, you've got all of these incredible blues players that are not getting radio play. They don't have a studio in town where they can go and record their music. And so he builds this place with the intention of recording these incredible blues artists. How did they first meet, the two of them?
3: Marion's really awesome. And also, too, to like put into perspective the time period we're looking at, Like Jim Crow was happening at this time segregation laws were happening when they first opened the studio and when he was wanting to go to Bill Street and all those juke joints and Bill Street was segregated and that was where the black community was so that also speaks to the progressive thought and emphasis of everything he was doing at that time from building the space and thinking of the ceilings to how he worked with the gear he had even mm-hmm. to that But Marian, she was really incredible. So she was working at WRAC and Sam met her there. And she was so popular in the city that she started working in radio at 11. And she ended up becoming so popular, she had a gig at every single radio station in the city. She also managed one of the stations at WRAC as well. And she was doing all that while her and Sam both were working in radio when they were first getting this place started. And she continued to do that as she worked here until she left here.
0: She would literally take her own money and put it in the petty cash so that she could make change to keep the place going.
2: So she was devoted.
3: Very much so.
0: She's not an unsung hero in these walls, but to a lot of people, they know the name Sam Phillips, and they don't know quite as much about Marion and how crucial Mm -hmm. she was to the studio and everything that it stands yeah
3: for. like her and sam they painted all the acoustic tiles and they painted the floor tiles and while sam was building the back control room she put in the bathroom back there so she was very much an equal in terms of like the foundation of this place and what kept it operable and she also too was in she was an audio engineer she was a tape operator now we don't know whether or not she did any of that on any specific songs here, but she was doing that in radio.
2: Marion and Sam's studio did so well that Sam eventually turned it into a full-fledged label.
3: Even like Joe Hill Lewis, he was the very first person to ever record at the Memphis Recording Service.
0: Which yeah. is what the studio was originally called. Sun is kind of more of a slang for the, the building itself. It was originally the Memphis Recording Service. Sun is the record label that Sam starts mm-hmm. in 1953. Mm-hmm. After seeing how big of a hit Ike Turner and Jackie Brenston and their band have with the song Rocket 88 for the Chess record label, Sam says, well... I gave you this. I could make this money. And so he starts his own record label. And then near the latter part of the 50s, you see people like Johnny Cash referring to coming here. We'll go down to Sun. So it became kind of a slang for the studio that housed the record label, but it was actually the Memphis Recording Service.
2: The studio is full of rock and roll memorabilia, dating back to when it first opened in 1950. When they first created this space... Can you walk me through what it looked like? Of course, our listeners are just listening to this. They're not seeing it. Tell me as you walk in the door what you're seeing and progress to the back.
0: Basically, when you first walk into the studio, you're in the office where the secretaries that worked here, of whom Marion was one of them, as well as Sally and Becky, Sam's wife, would also do some work here as well. You first walk in, you see their office, you see Marion's desk, a filing cabinet, there's an old television that is rumored to have been sold to Marion by Johnny Cash. It was his only successful appliance sale, he always said, was selling that TV to Marion. And then you walk through that office and you come into... A fairly, by some accounts, small, fairly large by others room that with a very high angled ceiling. This was an old garage is what it was in the 50s. Union, which is the street that Sun Studio is off of, Has always been one of the busiest streets dating back to old native american trails here in memphis union madison poplar all went deep into memphis and then all the way to the river so it's always been a fairly busy street it was a garage before it was a recording studio which i always thought was a little funny when you think about all the different garage bands that would have gotten started from music made in what was an old converted garage You see there's the angled tiles, and then you go further back into the room past the tracking floor, which is where we are currently sitting, and you get into the elevated control room, which was a common theme amongst all of the studios that Sam built. He liked an elevated control room so he could see down into the tracking floor, but you go back into the control room, you see an RCA 76D console. It's got six channels with one master output. So he is cutting single track mono and he's having to mix it at the exact same time that the band is performing it because there is no post-production that can be done to those recordings beyond maybe some slight equalization and mastering. if he doesn't nail the mix and get that set in right or bring the solo up when he wants to then the band's got to do that take again so you see an rca 76d which is the same model he would have been working with Two Ampex tape machines, again, single track. Two is important because Son, one of the things that it became known for was something called slapback tape delay, which he, Sam, discovered you could send an audio signal to one tape machine, and the delay in time it took to travel through one piece of the tape to the master tape created an echo effect. And there's no echo chamber here in this building, so it was a way for him to add a little sparkle and magic to the voices or the guitars that he was recording here in this room. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look.
3: It was the worst day
0: ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town.
1: I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me again in my whole life. You can listen
0: now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate
1: the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... visit parker dot com slash purpose parker engineering your success
2: so there's a lot of things around here in this room in the room back there. would any of
0: it be original to the space? Yes, so the structure itself of the ceiling is original. I've actually looked when we've had, tiles every now and then that fall and we have to put back up. In fact, that happened to Zoe on her very first tour here. you tell that story yeah. a
3: minute? As soon as I was kind of saying like my last thing I say to close out my tour, I start to walk out that way to open the door to let the tour out. And this guy kind of makes a noise and I turn back around and he comes up to me and he's like, a ceiling tile just hit me in the head. And one of the tiles right up above us here actually like fell and bopped him straight in the head. He was okay. They don't weigh much.
0: There's been no lawsuit yet.
3: Yeah, <laughs> uh, you would
0: have probably been content to go home with it, right? I, right, I would think. I would certainly think so. I'm surprised there's,
3: he didn't try.
0: There's some you can find <laughs> uh, on eBay that are rumored to be the tiles from here that I've seen go for like, well. The asking price is like 10 grand, which is crazy. But the I've looked inside of the angles from one of these tiles we were working on and you can literally see the joists that were put up dating all the way back to when they first started the studio in 1950. The angles that are here in the room are to help with the audio recording. It helps make the sound bounce around in a much more desirable way, so you get less microphone phasing. So the lighting fixtures, the ceiling, the structure itself, the flooring is original to the studio. I've spent a lot of time researching and trying to determine because there's a quote in Guralnik's book where Marion talks about painting the floor red with Sam, which is unusual because you can see the floor itself is not red. It also does not appear to be red in any of the black and white photos that we have from that era. There's one photo of the day that Elvis's contract was signed where you can see the sunlight is hitting the floor in this room and it appears to be, from what you can tell in a black and white photo, the same color as it is now. There's also a picture of Johnny Cash in the room where there's either a carpet underneath him or the floor looks black because of the way the photograph is lit because it's a black and white photo. So it's difficult to tell. But I think what Miriam was saying when she was talking about painting the floors red, as you'd mentioned, is the glue and paste they were using, you know, how those often come in colors. So you can make sure you've covered the entirety of whatever it is that you're wanting to adhere I've seen the bottom of a tile that has broken up under one of the amps, and you can see a red tent to the tile bottom of the tile itself, which I wonder if is the glue. And that's what she's speaking of when she's talking about painting the floors red and putting those down. So I believe the floor, to be authentic, it's also made of asbestos tile, um, which was not legal to work with. As of 19, if I remember correctly, 76 in America, making it very difficult for them in 86 or 87 to get that sort of building material when this place reopened. So I believe the floor is the original floor. There's a hole where Bill Black is rumored to have put his bass in the floor when he would record. I've never seen an upright bass wear a hole into a floor like that, but if anybody could do it, I think it would be Bill Black with the way he played and would jump all over that thing.
2: What about any of the other items that we're seeing?
0: the microphones instruments guitars those aren't original to the studio many of those were gifts from like the gibson guitar factory marty stewart gave us this martin d28 there's an old Gretsch new yorker that's a guitar from the 30s 1940s era upright k bass with catgut strings it's the best sounding upright bass i have ever heard in my life But these have all been acquisitions that were made over the course of the studio being reopened so that we can continue to record bands in here. And then Zoe and myself and another engineer named Lydia, we all help make sure we keep all these things up and running. There's a drum set that U2 gifted the studio in 86 when they came in here and recorded a few of their songs from Rattle and Hum. That's still the same drum kit we use to this day. If a band comes in to record, that's the one that we're micing up over there. And then there's a Wurlitzer 88 piano as well that Jerry Lee played in, I believe, the 90s and he put his cigar out on the low e key because he always wanted people to know that he'd actually played this piano i also think it's kind of funny that he put it out on the e key just because of their rivalry between him and biggie elvis so i wonder if he had any any meaning behind that beyond just wanting to put his cigar out on the piano what about the mic behind you Oh yes, the of course the ni- nineteen fifty five sure. So Sam liked recording with sure fifty fives. They're used on a, a variety, a number of the artists that would come in here and record to would usually record their vocals into a sure fifty five. When the studio reopened as a tourist attraction, he came through. There's a video you can see of him walking around and just kind of taking people through the space. And I believe the eighties or nineties, and he gifted us that microphone at that time so that when people come in they can get their photographs taken with it he had one stipulation when he gave it to the studio he didn't want us to keep it behind glass so now it's something that everybody's able to come in and take their photograph with
2: and what about the equipment that would be back in that room?
0: No those are it's all come from different studios like this playback speakers here on the floor came from Capitol Records, Brian Wilson would have worked on those with Beach Boys, the Ronettes God rest Ronnie, would have, she would have played, had her music played through those, Phil Spectre, Frank Sinatra, those were acquired when the studio reopened, I believe through Muscle Shoals, who had acquired them through Capitol Records. And then a lot of the old Ampex tape machines and equipment were also acquired through Muscle Shoals Studio when there was an acquisition in the 90s. In 1959, Sam Phillips opened a bigger, more
2: updated facility. The original Sun Studio on Union Street went by the wayside, But in 1987, a man named Gary Hardy, himself a musician, reopened the original building. Now it is both a tourist destination and working studio. Since then, bands and artists such as U2, Def Leppard, and Ringo Starr have recorded here. But even amateurs are welcomed into this hallowed space. This often transforms
0: Crockett and Zoe's job from engineers into therapists sometimes the job is is almost psychological it's it's this person is struggling in what way are they struggling will i help or hurt if i involve myself sometimes too they're struggling and you got to let them struggle because that struggle is where they're going to get the take and if i'm poking my head in and intervening i'm getting in the way of them drawing it out of themselves so you really kind of have to know when to step in when to stay out, and it's a a fun experience to see, to get to see how people respond to being in here and recording. I mean, so many people, basically everyone that's come through, it's been a dream of theirs in some capacity to have done some work here. This
2: mix of professional and amateur, famous, and obscure is part of
0: the studio's allure. It was important that the studio be accessible. The night after the million dollar quartet photo is taken a band called the heathens which were a high school garage rock band here in memphis basically they didn't even continue to be a band after this like recording session beyond maybe just playing in their garage that very next night they're the band that's in here recording and this has always kind of been a space where one night we could have a, an artist like mono neon who lives here in memphis and is a bass player that used to play with prince who now plays with daru jones who's a, a jack White drummer we could have them in here, and then the next night we could have somebody who, very first time they've ever set foot in a studio, they don't know the process, procedure, they don't necessarily know what to expect. It's really interesting to get to see the interplay, and I think it's important too that this space continue to be this way, and that this isn't just a walled garden where you have to be somebody that we know of, or it's got a, it's got to it's the life and breath of this place. What sticks in the holes of these acoustic tiles are all these kids that are now on the walls here that were coming in one day trying to make their start. And even if somebody comes in here and ultimately goes on to greatness in other places, I I always think it's important that this kind of be a space where they get the best experience they can so that you can see and realize your dreams. We're just canvases for the artists that are in here working. And it's important to kind of be as out of the way as possible so they can communicate what they're here to do.
2: Join me next time to hear about The Dispute over who recorded Elvis' first ever record in this studio and more about other legendary acts who have played here.
3: You women have heard of Jalopith, you've heard the noise
2: they make But let me reintroduce my new Rocket 88 Yes, it's straight, just one way Everybody likes my Rocket 88, baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies.